morning, which I'll tell you about in a second. But before we do, um, let me just pause and let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us as your people. Um, with all of our own challenges and struggles that we face, both in our family and outside our family, we just ask, God, that you would use this time where we gather together as your people under one name to celebrate one Father, to sing praise to one Savior. We ask that you would pour out your spirit in a way that is um, tangible and powerful in our hearts so that we could honor the Lord with our words, honor the Lord with our lips, with our lives and with our vocations, with our actions, with our parenting, with our husbanding and wifing. We just ask God that you would do a work this morning. I pray that this, uh, this man's life that was also a life um, saved by and supported by and preserved and moved by grace, that you would teach us from it in Christ's name. Amen. So normally on a Sunday morning, if you're brand new, this is your first time, we make our way through texts of scripture. Uh, we're in the middle of, actually not a middle anymore, we're at the tail end of a series on the book of Revelation, and next week will be the final um, message in chapter 22. But we have in the past paused on the Sunday after Reformation Day, which was November 1st, to do kind of a biographical sketch of a Christian from the past. Um, with hopes that their lives will teach us. Um, and just in case you're wondering, is Dan going to use any scripture? I will. I will weave scripture in here. We're going to be looking this morning at the life of John Williams. Not to be confused with the composer, okay? The one who wrote the scores to Star Wars and E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark and the 1984 Olympic fanfare theme. Um, no, we're talking about John Williams, who was born in England in the year 1796, a missionary. And we thought it would go really well with having Africa new life here. But let me say by way of um, caution, it's dangerous at times to lift up a saint in a couple of ways. One danger is lifting up a saint in a way that detaches him from the grace of God that enabled him to be and do what he did, in which case we elevate a man and not the grace of God that made and moved in the man. And when we lift up a man and say, wow, he was a great guy, in the end, we may feel inspired for a moment, but at the end of the day, we'll find ourselves discouraged because we'll think, whoever could live up to that? So this has to be bathed in the grace of God. I guarantee you, if John Williams was here today, he'd say, I, like you, am a clay pot, and all I offer to the Lord is broken obedience. And God took it and did something great. So that's the first caution. The second one, when you're looking at the life of someone like a missionary or a theologian, and we've looked at theologians like Augustine, we've looked at statesmen like um, William Wilberforce, um, when you hold up like a missionary like this, it's easy to kind of have a straight jacket concept about the kind of person God uses. And I think John Williams is actually kind of kind of break that. That is, it's easy to think that, well, God really uses like the missionary. They're more Christian, more usable than, say, someone who teaches in a public school or someone who works and serves Jesus down at the city planning department. Like, God has called people in all kinds of different vocations to honor him and serve him and to build his eternal city. So in lifting up the life of this missionary, I don't want you to straightjacket how you think the Christian life has to be in terms of, like, some kind of grand success. Be who you are. 
Do what you're called to do in service to Jesus and faith, humbly, and God will use you. So with that said, um, let me tell you how I want to proceed. Um, obviously, with the limited time we have, I'm just going to hit a couple high points in his life. If you want to read more deeply, which I hope you will, there are plenty of biographies out there. You can read his own journals from his expeditions and his narrative of his expeditions, which most of them you can get online free as public domain. I'm just going to hit the high points of his life, and I want to provide five reflections, reflections that I think we can take home today without having to go and be a missionary, okay, on his life. So I told you he was born in 1796. I have a lot of dates in my head right now, so if I get one wrong, don't crucify me later, okay? 1796, he was born in a town just outside of London, England. At the age of, I think it was 17, uh, he was on a Sunday morning planning on going out and drinking beer with his buddies, okay? And this lady approached him and said, hey, why don't you come with me to church? Beer with buddies? Go to church. Didn't want to go to church, but his buddy didn't, buddies didn't show up. So guess what? He went to church with this lady. And he thought, well, I'll just make it through, sleep through this droning sermon. But the opposite happened. The pastor was preaching from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. And this text has been used for other people's lives to launch them into, into mission work too, where Jesus asks his disciples this profound question. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And the point is like, listen, what, what, what does it really matter if you get everything? If you have the house on the hill and you have two cars in the garage, everything's paid off, you have a great retirement plan, you have a wife, you have kids, you have it all. Is there any profit if that's all you have, and you give up your own soul. And, of course, the assumed point is, no, it's not worth it. It's not profitable at all to be super successful in this life and forfeit your own soul. It's like building a sandcastle, only to see it washed out with the tide. That's it. There's got to be something more. Actually, Christian life is about giving your life away so that you find your own soul, and your soul receives salvation. So he heard this. Preacher preached this. And like God, God does at different times, and God is, is the one who's sovereign over the moment when he cuts to your heart through a text of scripture. And he knew at that moment, I need the Lord. Like, he wanted to drink beer with his buddies and studies in church. Next thing you know, he's like, I got to give my life to the Lord. I got to trust the Lord. And a, a fire began in his soul. Like I said, 17 years old, 1814. And those around him could see the fire in his soul for the Lord, just, just like starting. And so a pastor, a reverend by the name of Matt Wilkins, Matthew Wilkins, decided he was going to disciple this young man. So he made him part of what they call the, let's, let's see if I can get this right, Mutual Improvement Society. All right? Mutual Improvement Society. Where they would study. They would study the Bible. They would study ministry in preparation for ministry. But it was, it, was, it was not an official, like, institutional degree or anything like that. Just began discipling this young man. At the time, though, understand that um, John Williams had a blue-collar vocation. He was being apprenticed as a foundry worker. That is, to work with metal. He loved to fabricate and engineer things. So... By our standards, he would be a blue-collar, hands-on kind of guy. But he's being mentored by a pastor. 
And then he hears a story from this pastor about how 30 missionaries went out to the Polynesian islands, you know, Tahiti, Bora Bora, that kind of thing. And back there, you might think, oh, that sounds great to go on a mission trip to Tahiti or Bora Bora, you know, sit Mai Tais on the beach, you know, that'd be wonderful. And should I say that some of the modern uh, myths about how island people lived back then, you know, kind of the glorification of they lived in harmony and peace, was absolutely not true in the Pacific South, South Pacific. They were brutal, they killed each other, and they ate each other. Of those 30 missionaries that went down 20 years before this event where he's 18, 14, 15 or so, only three came back. But here's this young 18, 19-year-old who says, I want to go. I want to go to the Polynesian Islands and be a missionary. He has no formal training. He has no institutional degrees. He has no bachelor's, no master's. But he has been discipled by a pastor. And his skills, blue-collar skills. 1816, he submits an application to the London Missionary Society. Didn't think he'd get accepted because he had no qualifications to speak of. But they said yes. And in 1817, he got married in October, October 27th. And he left on a ship November 17th, just a couple weeks later, at 21 years of age. 21 years of age, leaving the only home you know to make a really long voyage to a place you've never been. Now let's pause here for a second to make first reflection. I'm just going to call this gospel preparation. It would be easy to think, based upon the lack of qualifications, that he's not a fit. But what we're going to see is he's precisely a good fit. That God had been preparing him, and in some sense he was prepared. There is a need, and which is why Africa New Life has a college. There is a need for preparation. You can't just send somebody out with no training at all. But you see in the life of John, I see in the life of John Williams, this preparation by both providence and discipleship. We're going to find in a couple of minutes that his skills and abilities as an iron worker, as a manufacturer, as a kind of fabricator of sorts, is not by accident. Teaching me that God makes no accidents in a person's history. Like the skills he gives you, the experiences you have, the talents you have, all of those are woven together perfectly by a designer who's wise and is going to use all of your past to be part of his work, as we will soon see. So you're going to see God was wise in, 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 the, in the route, the path that he took John Williams as a young man. But then he was disciple. He spent two, better part of three years with a pastor, regularly being trained. See, there's two extremes, which I think both are wrong-headed. The one is to say, hey, wow, you love Jesus? Just go out and be a pastor somewhere with no training whatsoever. That's stupid. You'll mess yourself up and others. On the other side is the belief that, well, you have to have 13 degrees before you can go and be a pastor or missionary. And that, too, is wrong. God has never been limited by institutional education. Jesus that we know of had no institutional formal training. Neither did his disciples who were blue-collar blue guys. Now, this isn't to disparage institutional training. African New Life is doing a great thing, and that is an institution. However, 
God is not limited to that. Right? But he was discipled. Just as Jesus' disciples, his blue-collar dudes, spent three years under his teaching, watching him, listening to him, and ultimately seeing him pay the price for what he was teaching. So he was prepared. This is just to say, and I think a big piece of where all of us need to self-examine is to say, am I discipling somebody? Am I being discipled? It's really important for us to know the gospel, love the gospel, and then be able to share the gospel. So this is just the first reflection. It's just how God has crafted this man. So they leave 1817, and they make their way down to their first port of entry to pick up supplies, which is Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Okay, so you just got to kind of think in your map. I'm, I'm doing this from my perspective. Yours would be the opposite. Down to South America. So they cross the Atlantic, and guess what John was doing at the time? His wife was sick on, on deck because she got motion sickness. That's horrible. Newlyweds, you know, motion sickness. He's in the ship studying the hull. He's just like a fabricator. He's a person who's an ironworker. He's like, how is this thing made? And he spends his time studying the ship. That's because he's passionate about stuff like that. Well, they arrive. I don't remember exactly how long it took to get to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. But something happened there that teaches us about the heart and the gospel of John Williams. Now, some of what I was gonna say, I'm going to say is going to be or touch on the controversial, even political. But I mean what I say sensitively, and I mean to make a theological point, not a political one, in what follows. One of the things that he sees, John, when he goes ashore, is he sees firsthand African slave markets. African slave markets. And this is what he says about the experience. This is one of the oldest biographies that was written by him who quotes him. Having occasion to go on shore again, we pass through the slave market. Oh, it is shocking beyond description to behold they are kept in open places like our potato shops in London. Like selling a piece of fruit. And about 20 of them together, they differ in their ages from 10 years to 50. And we're sitting on forms 10 years old. What is that, fifth grade? He sees this, people being treated like animals. He continues on, he says, we saw some with very heavy irons around their body and legs, others with an iron ring around their necks with upright pieces of iron on each side and a projecting piece like a fork behind. Thus are our fellow creatures. Notice what he says, fellow creatures. The language tells us he sees them as fellow creatures like himself. Treated in this idolatrous place. When I came home, I could not help weeping bitterly at the very affecting sight I had that day witnessed. So here you have this 21-year-old who's weeping because he's seen the slave trade. Call this racism, upfront and personal, probably for the first time in this brutal context. But here's the thing. This tells you about his heart and his theology. He didn't just go home and weep. 
He went into that market, and guess what he did? He preached. Some of what he preached has been recorded. He said, every one of you will have to give an account to the living God for the way in which you treat other human beings. This is a Christian message of, listen, whatever the courts of man have to say, the fact of the matter is you're going to stand before God for treating these people this way. They told him to shut up. Those involved with the slave trade, shut up. And he, he refused. And to keep preaching. 21-year-old. Courage, the heart, a huge heart of courage. Until some guy assaulted him with a knife. And he had to flee and escape. Now this is the touchy part. What would motivate a white man from England to risk his life and speak out against the injustice of those who were in stocks and chains, who had black skin? Why would he do it? Let me tell you why he didn't do it, why he didn't stand up for injustice. It was not because he was woke. Much of what we see today, its fuel, comes from a dangerous, divisive, toxic theory of justice and racism that at the end of the day produced hate and violence. No. The reason that John Williams stood there that day at 21 years of age at risk of his own life was because he was a Christian. He was a Christ follower. Think about this for a second. A life that's saturated in the scripture, that's been well-discipled, understands the, 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 the merit and the worth of human life. We have the doctrine of creation and doctrine of redemption, both of which John knew well. It's part of why he was going to the Polynesian islands. You know, our doctrine of creation teaches us that God created us all in his image and therefore are equally valid and noble Objects of God's love, rooted right in the beginning, first chapter of Genesis, the value of human life, every human life, no matter where you come from, no matter what your skin color is, it's right there in the opening section of the Bible. But then ask yourself the question, why would a, why would a white guy from England travel thousands of miles on a churning sea in a wooden boat to people who have a different skin color than him? The answer, because he knew that Jesus died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including himself. You see? That is that Christ had purchased, ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, and nation. He understood this is his heart. And to see people mistreated this way was a violation of his understanding of the Bible, generally, and the redemption, specifically, we have to be very careful, I think, and the reason I bring this up, to make sure that we're thinking biblically. And what drives us is not some philosophy that's foreign to the Bible, but from the Bible itself. 
you will find far more wonderful motivation that comes from a place of love, not hate, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the second. It's just the, this gospel authority. He recognized the truth of what the gospel means, who people are created to be, their value, and ultimately the objects of God's redeeming love. So from there, these last ones will go a little quicker. They leave Porto, Porto Vallarta. They leave Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> Wrong side. And, you know, if you don't know anything about currents and, and, uh, and the winds, which I really don't, you'd think, well, why don't you just go down south around the Cape Horn, you know, Argentina, and just go into the Pacific. It's right there. But no, apparently that's not what you do. And so they left. They crossed the Atlantic again, went around the southern tip of Africa, over the Indian Ocean. They passed Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> that's a lot of time. It didn't reach French Polynesia until, until after being on a boat for a year. Man, <laughs> I complain when I have to sit on a Boeing 757 for six hours. Oh, my back hurts. I hate these flights. They were on a ship for a year. I mean, they had some stops along the way, but talk about commitment. He had a heart for the people. He didn't even meet them yet. So, like I said, he landed in French Polynesia. And uh, he was the kind of guy who he didn't want to build where other people had built. There were other missionaries on certain islands. So he wanted to start a work on an island that hadn't heard about Jesus yet. His focus of his life were three primary island groups. One was the island of Raiatea. Now, if you happen to be a native Polynesian and I butcher the name of your island, forgive me. Um, I didn't have a native... Polynesian that I could ask. So, Rayatea. The second was Rotonga, Rotonga, and the third one, which I can say easy, is the islands of Samoa. I got that one right. Okay, those were his main ones. But he started in Rayatea, in the, in the, in the, in, in that island. And listen to what he did in five years. He not only planted a church, he built a church, a sizable church, that would probably fit a lot of people. Because they had, regularly, at the end of five years, 2,000-plus people coming to service. Uh, he was teaching the gospel, holding classes. He took their language, which was an oral language, and he put it to print and then translated the Bible for them in their own language. He brought cows and, and uh, uh, goats in from Australia. Better to teach them how to farm to eat beef than to eat people, each other. Right? They were cannibals. Some of them were. And then he, on top of this all, he trained teachers of the gospel, indigenous people, to go to other islands and teach the gospel. That's what he did in five years. Five years. That's... Now... Perhaps not everybody came to Christ on the island of Raiatea, but essentially he had Christianized the entire island. And not just that island, but other islands that people had gone to, there was like this wave of conversions happening in that, at that time in history. So he writes this. These are some of his firsthand um, observations taken from his a narrative of missionary enterprises in the South Sea Islands. Speaking of the island of Aitutaki, 
And I quote, at that time also they were constantly killing and even eating each other for they were cannibals. But now they are all with one accord bending their knee together in worship of God, of the God of peace and love. Talk about transformation. Same island. He says, not a vestige of idolatry was to be seen. That is, they would bring their wooden idols called mares, and they would bring them to burn them or throw them into the sea. Not a vestige of idolatry was to be seen. Not a god was to be found in the island. So great a change affected in so short time, it, almost, it is almost beyond credibility. But we witnessed it with our eyes and exclaimed, what hath God wrought? There's the grace. It's like when you know you can't explain something from what you did. You're like, this is amazing. This is what, what is God wrought? I'm so, so immediately surprised at, at what's happening. He was at the right place, the right time that God had determined. Preached the gospel and like a fire just took off. Like a wave. And it transformed not only individuals, but families and entire societies. So much so that the king of Raiatea, by the man by the name of Tamatoa, said, hey, can you help us institute laws in our land? To which John Williams said, well, let's start with the Ten Commandments. Now, let's just pause for a second. Here are people who formerly butchered each other and ate each other saying, hey, we need some legislation of morality because we know what it looks like not to have. Why? Because their hearts were transformed. They wanted to love each other. They wanted to love the Lord. And the law of the Lord is simply a means by which we know how to love each other. You don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, and you don't kill each other or steal from each other. They're wanting laws. Kind of the reverse of our culture trending in the opposite direction, right? This just shows, again, I, I think the power of the gospel to change individuals, families, islands, Societies, You know, that wave would make all, all the way to Hawaii, part of the Polynesian Islands, too, just way far north. You go there and you read the history of the Hawaiian Islands, you realize Kamehameha's wife on her deathbed said, we need to be baptized. And guess what? Our descendants need to be Christians. God did such an amazing work in that time. A tribute to the power of the gospel. Again, one more quote. Little did I expect to see so much accomplished in such a short time. 18 months ago, they were the wildest people I ever witnessed. Now they have become mild and docile, diligent and kind. That's the power of the gospel. We can't forget this. It's knocked down walls, fortresses, brought people to life, brought people from hate to love from people who are demanding service to servers. This, too, is from the scripture, is it not? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it's the power of God to salvation. It has unspeakable power. And they never used a sword, a musket, nothing. They just went with a message, and it washed over the islands. That's the power of the gospel. That's part of the big story for me. It's just like, man, that's amazing. There are other places in the world where fires have broken out like that. In Russia in the 1990s. Probably seen it in Rwanda. Just like God just says, boom. And like a juggernaut, the gospel just breaks through walls.
Another reflection is the way in which he replicated himself. Um, this is a kind of an interesting story. It ties into the beginning. Is he was training these teachers to go out, Ryation teachers who could speak the language to go to other islands, and they wanted to go to teach the gospel. The problem is they, had, they lacked transportation. You know, uh, they were dependent upon the shipping industry. So if a ship didn't show up, you didn't get to go. And for whatever reason, the London Missionary Society decided you can't have a ship. We're not going to give you a ship or a boat. So guess what John Williams did? He built one. Guess who gave him the skills to do that? All those years working in a foundry, learning how to engineer things and fabricate things, not wasted. He built a ship, and he would drop missionaries, indigenous missionaries off in the islands to start the work. And it just took off. Replication. There's a point of application here. You don't have to go to the Polynesian islands to replicate yourself. If you've been a Christian and you know the gospel, and if you don't, hey, get discipled. Find somebody to teach you, mentor you. But the fact of the matter is you could be replicating yourself here. What you've received, give to others. That's exactly what Paul instructed Timothy to do. Right here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of my many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And you see this work. John Williams comes to faith and then is mentored by Matthew Wilkes. He then goes out and he's now discipling Ratteans who are now going up and discipling other people in other islands. That's how it's supposed to work. If you just leave it to the professionals and the pastors and the missionaries, it won't work. You and I have a personal responsibility to replicate your faith in other people. I know that's a work of grace, so you can't control it, but we're supposed to be part of that process. Now, I've painted a really rosy picture so far. Like, man, this is exciting. I want to go. Of course, Tahiti looks a lot different now than it did back then. Um, not that I've ever seen it, but I've seen pictures. But it was also very hard. And this will bring us to the final point. And not only was it hard to get there, but John and Mary would have ten children. Three would survive. And a shout-out has to go to Mary, his wife. Often underemphasized, underrecorded in history who supported John the whole time and dealt with a loss of seven children. And nowhere have I read that she was angry at God. They understood that you give your life to Christ, which includes all you own, it's his. As hard as it may be and as much grief as that would have had in their hearts, the fact of the matter is she understood who it was for in service to Christ. It's Mary and John. There were islands that they went to that weren't nice. So one particular one that I will read you a quote from, and this is the fifth reflection. It's just how God uses suffering in connection with the gospel. This is the island of Mangaea. He sent some of his trained teachers of the gospel who were indigenous people to the island. Now you have to picture they parked the big ship out off the shore, and then they send a little boat in, you know, with them. Then they get off on shore, and uh, the island, they're usually pretty careful. Like, 
because the islanders were kind of twitchy, you know? <laughs> Couldn't tell if they were gonna lick you or bite you, kind of thing. Like a Doberman pincher, you know, not sure. Well, he had a group that went off onto the island, and sure enough, they were attacked. And this is what he writes. He says, but, but what um, completed the catastrophe was their conduct to the poor females of the group. Their teacher's wives, whom they carried into the woods and were proceeding to treat with great brutality when terrified at the report of a small cannon which we fired from the vessel. In other words, they fired a cannon it scared them off. Good use of cannon fire. They ran away. We immediately sent the boat and brought our people off the vessel, off to the vessel, and certainly their appearance was uh, truly deplorable. Their hats and bonnets had been torn from their heads. They'd been dragged through water and through mud, and their shirts and gowns were hanging in ribbons about them. So there was loss, and there was pain and suffering in the process, and it still went on. But that wasn't the worst part, and this, I'll bring John's story to a close. John went back to England to give a report, um, almost two decades after being there. He returned to England for the first and last time and wrote his narrative of expeditions, studying coral and rocks and volcanic stuff, as well as what's happening with the natives in the gospel. Uh, very um, uh, love to learn, you know, inquisitive. And then he made the voyage back, probably another year. Years 1838. And true to his desire to see the gospel go to new islands, he set his sights on a group of islands called the New Hebrides. Hope I pronounced that right. He and his friend, um, James Harris, and they did their cautionary thing and they're praying and all that and decided they were going to go ashore. They went ashore and they were attacked. And John Williams was clubbed to death and later found out he was cooked and he was eaten. the one who wanted to bring the gospel to cannibals was in the end cannibalized. And of course, worked to tell his story over and over and over again, just like Jim Elliott and others. It magnified his, his sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, which inspired people to go into ministry, go into missions, to just be better Christians, be more devoted Christians. And you say, well, that's a kind of a sad ending to the story. It was actually not. In one sense, it is. But in another sense, it shouldn't surprise us that our king and our savior and our lord, he entered this dark world knowing full well he was going to be brutalized and go to the cross. And guess what? He calls of us, take up your cross daily and you follow me. Suffering's part of the deal. And as soon as we think, well, I'm not going to do anything where suffering is involved, guess what? You're not following the Savior anymore. And you're not listening to his call. To Listen, he who tries to save his life will lose it. And the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. Follow me. We live in a very, it has been observed that we live in a very safety-conscious culture. Call it the idolatry of safetyism where the most important thing is your emotional, personal, and physical protection. It's like the sacred cow. And people have noticed this, sociologists and so forth, 
and said, this is, this is not, not healthy for us to eliminate all pain and all adversity and all agitation in life. If you ever have the chance, I'm almost done with it, I'm reading a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, recommended to me by somebody in this congregation, that speaks of the great untruth of the fragility of humanity. That everybody's so fragile like little tiny candles that you have to keep the wind from blowing, do it with your kids, do it with each other, do it on college and university campuses. Don't bring in the speaker, otherwise you might intellectually or emotionally harm somebody. A culture of safetyism. The author writes this. It says, excuse me. A culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from uh, very, the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. You go to the gym, it takes pain to gain, right? Jesus tells us that through many adversities and sufferings, we learn, we grow. So the question is, if we live in a culture right now that prizes safety above all else, how do we as Christians respond to the call to put your life at risk? Would someone right now say, yeah, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll step a boat, uh, aboard a boat called the Harriet, and I'll spend a year in travels and go to a place that may kill me. Our culture is very, very resistant to that. It's not to say that there's not a place for personal safety. There is. We should protect ourselves and one another, but not at all cost. There is something we prize higher than personal safety, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. And, am I right? So listen, the simple, I guess, taking all these things, you have this, this gospel preparation, and you have you know, this gospel authority. He understood. He was driven by it. You have this principle of gospel power, seeing it take over a, a, a lives and countries, and this principle of replicate, replicating yourself, but at the end of the day, being willing to suffer for it. How are you going to respond to this? Like, what is God calling you to do? It might be, not be boarding a ship, but, you know, beyond your fears and beyond your concerns and anxiety, what has God called you to do? And just take that step. It's always a first step, right? His first step was on a ship. It wasn't onto a shore where he would be eaten. It's just take a step, step onto the ship. What's the next step for you?